This morning I have the privilege of introducing to you our next sermon series. You've heard a bunch about it already, uh, a lot of comments about it, and uh, I get the privilege of preaching the first message about the attributes of God. Uh, Pastor Boone worked hard and chose ten of them. But undoubtedly, there are many, many, many more than ten attributes of God. And we will probably spend an eternity learning about those attributes, will we not? When we get to with with the Lord Jesus in eternity. Today, however, we're going to tackle one, and only one. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit of foundational stuff. I want to talk about attributes What is an attribute? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Webster defines it like this. It's a quality character or a characteristic ascribed to someone or something. When talking about a characteristic of God, we call it a divine attribute. Or more simply, if you're like me, you like simple definitions. It's something true about God. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, defines it this way. An attribute of God is whatever God has in any way revealed as being true of himself. It's not a part of God, but how God is. He goes on to say, and, and I love this line, Only to an equal could God communicate the mystery of his Godhead. To think of God as having an equal is really to fall into intellectual absurdity, is it not? So we submit and we acknowledge that we are not God's equal and we don't pretend to fully understand him. So why? Why do we take this time to actually talk about the attributes of God? Well, I hope you're like me and you want to know God better, more fully and deeper than we know him now. God has revealed himself to us in all of his creation. It's gone up about 30 degrees out there today. Isn't it wonderful? (laughs) He's also revealed himself to us in his infallible word, the Bible. He shows us his character in the words of Scripture. Those reflections of his character are not these disembodied qualities described in a book that we might just pluck off the shelf and read like a reference book. No, the very character of God pours forth from his personhood. And we are blessed to have ways of describing him in those categories we call attributes. Answering the question then, who is God? Is a revealing of his personality and should have deep and powerful effects on our lives. We want to know what God is like. Tozer also says this, such questions are not merely academic. They touch the far in reaches of the human spirit and their answers affect life and character and destiny. When asked in reverence and their answers sought in humility, these are the questions that cannot but Be pleasing to our Father which art in heaven. And he goes on to say, What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Dr. Stephen Lawson says this. He says, High views of God 
lead to high and holy living. High views of God lead to exalted, transcendent worship of God. But low views of God lead to low and base living. Our view of who God is affects us completely. Everything in our lives, including all of our actions and all of our relationships. It's the lens through which we see ourselves, how we are to live, and what we are to invest and pour ourselves into. And it comes out of our view of who God is. So it's vitally important that we know as much about him as we can. John MacArthur said, the most important thing that a man has is his understanding of God. And the most important message the church has to give is the knowledge of God. So the first attribute of God we're going to look at, as you've heard numerous times already, is the omnipresence of God, or the all-present, everywhere-present God. God is everywhere at all times. He is here. He is close to. He is next to. And then there's that prefix, omni. Is that a big word or what? Omnipresence. It gives its, its bigness, its universality. God is everywhere here. He is near to everything and close to everyone, you and me. We are not like him, are we? He is not like us. Psalm 50, 21, God says, you thought I was like you. Isn't that what we think? Tozer said, we must break ourselves of the habit of thinking of the Creator as we think of His creatures. God is infinite. He has no limit. There is no way to find the end of God. But some might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't He dwell in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the mercy seat above the wings of the cherubim? But Solomon said in dedicating that temple, he said in 1 Kings 8:27, "But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built." Another awesome quote from John MacArthur I want to share with you is this: "The symbol of God's presence is never the prison of his essence." Let me repeat that for you. The symbol of God's presence is never the prison of his essence. John is right. The symbol of God's presence was the temple back then. But it did not contain or constrain him in any way. No, he is fully everywhere at all times. He was in the temple, but he was everywhere else at the same time. The presence of God has been described like this. It's like the ocean in a bucket. And that bucket is submerged a mile down in the ocean. The bucket is full of the ocean, is it not? But the ocean surrounds it, top and bottom and all around, in every direction. So it is with God's presence, His omnipresence. He is filling His people, us. And at the same time, we are submerged in His being. He so surrounds us and all of his creation. He surrounds and he fills up all places 
and all times with his presence. We should never kid ourselves. God is fully here, even as he was fully there. In every space and at every moment in time, witnessing all that is said and done and even thought. Jeremiah in chapter 23 says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? We do tend to deceive ourselves, thinking that God is not literally right here with us. We think he's in heaven, sitting on his gleaming throne far off. Oh, how wrong we are when we think he isn't here among us today, walking alongside of us and being a daily part of our lives in very personal and relational ways. Omnipresence means that God is fully present at each point in a given place, at every point inside this building, and every point outside this building. Excuse me. More of God is not found at one point more than another. We call this room the sanctuary. Not because it's holier than any other room, or that God is somehow more present here than he is at home in your living room, We call it the sanctuary because it's where we gather with the intent to focus on God. If you're like me, we desire to shut out the world's clamor and noise and come here and pay full attention to what's really important. And that's the worship of our God. Now, God being God deserves all of our adoration. He reserves the right to make us feel his presence more strongly at certain times and in certain places. But even if God feels more present here than he does out in the hallway, he is still equally fully present here as he is there in both places. Now, I don't know about you, but there are days when I wake up and I don't feel that particularly close to God. Why do we feel that God is distant sometimes? When in reality, we know he's not. He's right here. Well, it could be we think of God in wrong ways. We project on him our own human experience of near and far. When we talk of him spatially, we make him like us, a being with physical limitations. How can Jesus be at the Father's right hand and then say in Matthew 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? Well, it's because God is spirit and we think of him and we talk of him in space and time limitations, they have no merit when we're talking about God. God is spirit. I already mentioned God reserves the right to make himself feel and felt more distinctly whenever and wherever he chooses. He says in Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. Does that mean he's actually closer to one person than another? No, not in his essence, in the confines of space and time as we measure. But maybe, maybe relationally, he is. I could say I'm closer to my wife, who's back there somewhere, than to anyone that's sitting right here in the first couple of rows. That's relational distance. 
Another reason is that in a spiritual sense, closeness is compared to similarity. And remoteness is compared to dissimilarity. Sometimes we feel like God is far off simply because he's so unlike us. He is holy, and we are not. He is sinless, and we are not. Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, either are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, I'm not saying if you feel far off from God that there must be sin as the cause. No, the book of Job teaches us otherwise. Remember Job's three friends. They made that assumption. But that wasn't true. On the other hand, it's never really a bad thing to examine ourselves. We shouldn't dismiss it too easily. Maybe there is something that's causing relational distance between God and me. And I don't want to ignore that. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This one hits me harder for you husbands that are out there. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Psalm 139, 23, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The Holy Spirit has some awesome things to say to us through David in in this psalm. So let's turn to Psalm 139. See how it ties into our study today. David wasn't always the man that could easily say, Sure, God, lay open my heart my inner thoughts, and expose all my actions. He was not always so open about his flawed life. You know, David was an adulterer and a murderer and did some terrible things. But God worked in him, reconciling David to himself, causing repentance and real change in David's heart. In Psalm 51, David grieves over his actions and he confesses his sin. We need to be like the David of Psalm 139, submitting ourselves to the scrutiny of God. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 18. I'm going to break it up in three sections. The first one is verses 1 through 6. He starts off with the truth of God's divine omniscience or his knowledge of all things, including every minute detail of David's life. He knows everything about David's every move, when he sits and when he stands, his every thought, where he is going and why he is going there. Verse 5 says, you hem me in front and behind. In other words, God is already there wherever David is going. And God is still back there wherever David came from. Does that blow your mind? It did for David. In verse 6, 
You can see that it's too much for him. And his thoughts are of a high view of God, which we said earlier leads to high and holy living. In verse 7, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? David knows that God is everywhere. Adam and Eve found that out, didn't they, in Genesis 3? Jonah found it out in the book of Jonah. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. And because of his prejudice against the Ninevites, he ran the other way. He soon found out that he couldn't hide, didn't he? God retrieved him with a storm and an enormous fish. You would think that in itself would change Jonah. And it did for a little while, but Jonah still had problems in dealing with a God who is there. In verse 8, we see the first of three comparisons. It says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Yes, God is present everywhere, not just in heaven and on earth, even in hell. Yes, he is everywhere. He may not be relationally there in Sheol, but his essence certainly is there. Verses 9 and 10, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In other words, David is saying, if I am at the very, very first sunbeam of the morning, as far east as I can see, or in the great sea in the Mediterranean, as far west as he could even imagine, still God is there, and his hand is upon David. Verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. That's the third comparison. Our human experience tells us that we can hide in the dark. We've seen others who wish to do harm, right? They hide in the dark, and we can't see them. We don't know where they are. Well, not so with the Lord. The dark is the same as the light for him. He sees it all, every detail, at every moment. And it seems to me that David is now building back up to this overwhelming sense of who God is, like he did in verse 6. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's what David is saying. I can imagine he feels this incredible flood of God's sovereignty rising up around him. He seems to be feeling maybe a little bit of suffocation and probably a small piece of him deep inside wants to run and hide from this God who is. But that's utterly useless action, is it not? But in verses 13 to 18, we can see David settling back in on the loving, good character of God. The care that God has for him flows back in and fills that void left by fear and his natural desire to control things. David is saying in these verses here, you were present before I was even a thought, before I was conceived. And then during the early moments of my creation and growth, you were present. You are present even in the day of my death. You know when my life will end, and you have numbered each one of those days. When I sleep... And my consciousness of you is detached. 
Then I awake and find that you are still there and that you have thought of me and given me breath for yet another day. Well, how does this omnipresence of God work out practically in our lives? I want to look at it in two ways. One, what does it mean for the Christian? The one who has placed his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first, it means comfort. Adam made reference to this. Hebrews 13:5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Matthew 5, 4 says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God promises to comfort us. And amazingly, he uses us to comfort others. That's the body in action. In my time in Africa, I think I did some crazy things while I was there. At least I would call them crazy. There were times that I was afraid because of the situation that I was in. In a place one time where 12-year-olds shepherding the sheep were walking around carrying AK-47s. And believe me, they didn't look too emotionally stable. There were other times that I had to drive through flooded riverbeds and on things that some people called roads that I never thought looked anything like any road that I ever drove on. Sometimes we had to drive up mountains that were so steep that one wrong move and you're, you were going down the hard way. But I personally knew of another missionary that would do anything, anytime, anywhere, if he felt that was God's plan. He told me about one experience he had of sleeping out under the stars and waking up in the morning right next to a burned out tank between two Somali warriors who also slept there with him. Together, they had hiked through the day and into the night all around that country looking for a way and a place to bring missionaries there. They walked through much of the night and eventually slept on the ground that night. Those warriors, they were so astonished that this fair-skinned white man slept peacefully in spite of the fact that they could have robbed him and killed him at any moment if they chose to. But here he was waking up to a beautiful, sunny morning in East Africa, seemingly without a worry. And they asked him, how can you do that? Well, he responded that he knew God was with him. Whether he lived or whether he died, he trusted God with his eternity. He had comfort in the Lord's presence. His total comfort in the Lord was a great comfort to me whenever I found myself in a tough situation. That was how we comforted each other. Secondly, God's presence means support or enabling power. In Exodus 4, Moses was afraid of the calling that God had chosen for him. And he tried to tell God, I'm not qualified for this. Verses 10 to 12 say this, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. 
but I am slow of speech and tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God provides. He even told Moses that he would fix his mouth. His ability to verbalize what God tells him. That's the very prayer that I was uttering in that pew right over there before I got up here to be in front of you. God be with my mouth. (laughs) In Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his church to make disciples of all nations, all people groups. And he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's awesome. He will be with us in enabling power to accomplish that which he calls us to do. Just last week, Pastor Boone rolled out for, our, for us our focus for 2019. And one of the items was 7,000 God conversations. Now you might be saying, like Moses, that's not for me. I'm slow of speech and tongue. God will be with your mouth. Amen. Amen. He calls all of us to be his witnesses. So 7,000 should really be a piece of cake for us. Some of you out there are gifted in evangelism, but most of us are not. So I'm looking at this year as being a great encouragement for us. That God will show us great things about himself when we let him be with our mouth. Now we can have conversations that are just simple right next to our neighbor saying, isn't this a beautiful day that God has made? We brought God into that conversation. Or the very far end where we could talk deeply about his death and his burial and his resurrection, that Jesus Christ is the one who gives us forgiveness of sins. But this is not about measuring results. No, it's simply about being faithful in sharing what we know about the Savior of the world. Amen. Rest assured that these responses that we receive through the website, they're not going to get shared with anybody except the pastoral staff. They'll never be shared publicly unless you give your permission. So first, we see God comforts us with his presence. Secondly, we see his support, his enabling power, even through our mouths. And third, his omnipresence is a shield against temptation and a motivator to holiness, to holy living. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Job 1.12 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold all that he has in your hand. is in your hand, excuse me. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 2 Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and temptations. So we can see that no one, not even Satan, has the ability to tempt or to harm you without the express permission of God. When we are tempted, God says that he will provide a way out. Well, that doesn't mean we always take it, does it? 
But that's obedience, a topic for another day. My guess is that God has probably shielded us from so many things that we'll never even know about until eternity. So his constant presence with us is a comfort. It's a support. And it's a motivation to holy living. Does it make a difference in our behavior if we're in someone else's presence? I think it does. To some degree, that's rightly so. Because we need to be aware of what our testimony is. But in another sense, we should be aware that God is always here with us. And it should help to motivate us to living godly lives. Would you do that thing or think that thought if you were actually seeing God's physical presence? You bet it would make a difference. So if we believe that he's actually there, actually here, then it should make a practical difference in our lives each and every day. So I'm going to ask you to think about doing something pretty juvenile. Maybe tie a string around your finger or clip a clothespin to your clothes and keep it there for a week and have it every day remind you God is here. He is present everywhere, all the time. I'll leave that up to you and God and see if it makes a difference. Now, what about the non-Christian? What does omnipresence mean for the non-Christian? To the unbeliever, it's also vitally important to understand that God is everywhere. I once worked with an engineering guy who was very offended by the thought that God was everywhere at every moment. What an invasion of my privacy, he would say. (laughs) But he was also afraid. He was fearful that if it was actually true that God was everywhere at every moment, (laughs) he knew about all the things that happened in that guy's life. Everything that he ever did that was not morally upright. Now, he was a very logical guy, this engineer. So I'm sure he would probably thought to himself, whoa, if this is true, I'm sunk. God knows that much about me? He knows those terrible thoughts I've had? Those times I thought I was the only one who knew how despicable I really am? Well, make no mistake. We are no better than that man, but better a forgiven despicable person than an unforgiven one who is going to end in condemnation. Psalm 21, verses 8 and 9 says this, and it's sobering. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will hold, will find those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. There is no escape. Amos 9.2 says, If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. Even hell does not exclude someone from the presence of God. And finally, in Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16, it says this about unbelievers in the last days. Everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Those that reject the offer of salvation from a holy God, they have nowhere to hide. Oh, brother or sister, if you are sitting here today and you are not a Christian, I beg you, don't leave this place today until you ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And there is not a one of us here that is not a sinner. That means we have earned that penalty. And God says it must be paid. For those that have repented, that have already turned away from their old life and toward God, those that have trusted what Jesus did by dying on the cross as the payment for our sin to satisfy the wrath of a holy and just God, it was enough. He paid our penalty. And when we believe in him and place our trust in him alone, we are declared not guilty, never to be judged for our sin. Amen? So if you find yourself today not in that position of not guilty, please submit to the only one who can save you from the wrath of God. I want us to close our eyes and bow our heads for prayer. And I'm asking that you, you who know Christ, pray for those that haven't yet come to that place. And those of you that know you need God's forgiveness, Would you please pray with me to that end? Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, I know that I am a sinner. I've not lived a pure life. I've broken your laws. I confess that to you today. And I ask you to receive me as your child. I acknowledge, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you are the only one that can pay that price for me. I turn from my old way of life and commit my life from this moment onward to you. Forgive me and accept me into your kingdom, into your family. Oh, make me a child of yours today, I pray in Jesus' name. And while our eyes are still closed and our heads bowed, if you just prayed that prayer with me, would you slip up your hand so that I can pray for you? Thank you again, Father, for this time that we've had to look into your word. For the time to be in your presence and to know and understand just a bit more about who you are and how great you are. That you are here with us at every moment and every second. Now, Lord, as we move into communion, a joyous ordinance of the church that helps us to practice the presence of God, would you bless This time I pray in Jesus' name, amen.